Okay, so I guess I'm gonna get started. It's really great to see so many people here um, for this inter truly interdisciplinary event. Um, I'm Lisa Sewell and I'm the Director of Programming for Gender and Women's Studies. And um, this event was fully co-sponsored by Gender and Women's Studies and um, Africana Studies, so I just wanna acknowledge that it's not a strictly uh, gender and women's studies event. Um, we also had support from the history department and the English department. Um, I'm, I just wanna put a plug in for a couple more events that are coming up um, in the near future. One is on Friday, um, and this event is, is, we're just helping to advertise it, but it's sponsored by Philosophy. Um, um, Dr. Linda Martin-Alkoff um, from City University of New York will be here giving a talk about rape after Foucault, rethinking experience and resistance. And that's at 4.30 on Friday in Bartley 1001. Um, and our next uh, Gender and Women's Studies event is on, is towards the end of October, October 24th. And we're bringing Lee Goodmark. She's a professor at the law school at uh, the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's going to be talking about the Violence Against Women Act, controversies and critiques, and um, about gender issues in relationship to this year's election. So um, we're really excited to have her come, and I hope you all all show up for that event, which will be in Driscoll Hall Auditorium, 4.30 on Wednesday, October 24th. So approximately a month from today. Um, so now I wanted to turn to our program. Um, we have uh, two speakers today. One is a professor of history, one is a poet, and I'm gonna introduce Lee Fott, the, our professor of history first. Um, Lee is a professor at Lemoyne College. She served as an associate editor on the first volume of Frederick Douglass's Correspondence, published by Yale University Press, and is the author of Southern Womanhood and Slavery, a biography of Louisa S. McCord, and Mystic Connecticut, um, from Peacott Village to Tourist Town. Um, she's currently at work on Fred Frederick Douglass's Women, which is going to be published by Oxford University Press in late 2013. She's also periodically maintains the blog Frederick Douglass's Women in Progress. So if you really get interested in what she's talking about, you can go um, check out her blog. Um, and um, I'm just going to turn the microphone over to you, Lee. Thank you so much for having me here. I very, feel very honored to be part of this panel and um, I'm really impressed so many people are here. So thank you very much. Um, I call this Anna Murray, Mrs. Frederick Douglass. She could not be known all at once. Rosetta Douglas Sprague wrote of her mother, Anna Douglas. She had to be studied. If Rosetta found this a difficult task, both Mrs. Douglas's contemporaries and historians wavered at the insurmountable obstacle of understanding a woman who, much like Emily Dickinson, selected her own society and shut out the rest. She left no written record of her thoughts and, with good reason, did not trust those who might pass along her confidences. Those privy to her inner life, such as her husband Frederick, respectfully kept her secrets. Yet, as the wife of one of the most famous black men in American history, she has inevitably drawn the curious gaze of the curious. Be they the gossip mongers who dragged her into an intra-abolitionist rivalry, or historians who, being professional voyeurs, attempt to understand her husband's life, both public and private. With Frederick at the center of the story, however, few have actually tried to understand Anna's life as anything more than background to his. Only Rosetta, gray-haired and on the brink of a new century, strained to place her mother at the center of a narrative. Still, even as she valorized the life of Anna, she found herself unable to escape the perception that, as is the condition of most wives, Anna's identity became merged into that of her husband. Nevertheless, in spite of herself, Rosetta revealed her mother as a tough woman, firm in opinions and efficient in expression. She also provided crucial clues by which we can study Anna Murray, Mrs. Frederick Douglass, nearly two centuries after her birth. And if we cannot know her at all, 
we can at least have a better idea of the shape of the space occupied by the woman who knew Frederick Douglass the longest. Long before there was Frederick Douglass and six years before Frederick Bailey was born, Anna Murray entered the world. By some unknown twist of fate and fortune, she missed enslavement through the emancipation of her mother, Mary, only a month before Anna's own birth. Her seven older siblings didn't have the same luck. Of the five brothers and sisters who followed her, at least one, Charlotte, came to live with her in later years. As did the rest of her family, Anna herself might have entirely escaped the notice of posterity had she not joined her own future with that of Frederick Bailey. Until then, Anna had led the life of many other free black women in Maryland. Sometime between 1827 and 1830, when she was in her late teens, she joined the leagues of free blacks migrating from the Maryland countryside to Baltimore in hopes of better wages. The majority of these migrants were women like herself, with over half of the free black population of Baltimore being female and in competition with one another for work and for husbands. By 1832, Anna found a position in the family of French merchant Charles Montel, and a few years later she moved to the family of Peter Wells. Although many years later a neighbor in Rochester noted Anna's very aristocratic ideas and speculated that her training evidently had been in southern families of high standing. At the time, Anna faced a future in which the only home she could expect to oversee was one belonging to someone else and in which she carried out orders rather than issuing them. Then she met Frederick. He left a record of this period of his own life in Baltimore, but skipped over his meeting with Anna in their courtship. Historians have usually assumed that they met meet at a meeting of the East Baltimore Mental Improvement Society, but this was unlikely because the group consisted of approximately six men, all engaged in honing their debating skills, something that women did not do. Instead, the closest that the evidence places Anna to Frederick was on Carolyn Street near Pratt in the summer of 1838, when Frederick walked a young boy to school run by Elizabeth Wells. This school sat on the same block as Peter Wells' home where Anna worked. So perhaps they met as one another passed the other while going about the daily routine. By the end of the summer of 1838, Frederick's master had ended an arrangement between them in which Frederick was allowed to live on his own and hire his time so long as he turned over part of his wages to his master. The revocation of this privilege underscored both the limits of freedom that Frederick might enjoy while still enslaved and the precarious future of any attachment he might form with anyone in Baltimore so long as a master might move him elsewhere. Frederick resolved to run away and three weeks later he hopped on a train to New York with a borrowed Siemens protection certificate in his hand and a sailor outfit on his back sewn, according to Douglas family lore, by Anna herself. Indeed, their family also passed down the story that her wages had purchased his ticket and allowed them to set up their household in freedom. Now, once secure in New York, notwithstanding my homeless, houseless, and helpless condition, Frederick sent an word to Anna, informing her of my successful flight and wishing her to come on. Another fugitive slave, now a minister, the Reverend J.W.C. Pennington, performed the ceremony. Then he gave them a document certifying their marriage as official. Upon receiving this certificate, Douglas wrote, I shouldered one part of our baggage and Anna took up the other and we set out on our way to New Bedford. And thus began their marriage and their partnership. The story of Anna and Frederick's life together tends not to emphasize their partnership, but Anna's sacrifices. And she certainly made those. She left behind her own circles in Baltimore to join her future with that of a fugitive slave, not knowing if she could ever contact her family again. She repeated the dislocation when her husband's career took them out of New Bedford's black community and into Lynn's, Lynn, Massachusetts, white abolitionist circles, and then to Rochester, and finally, 20 years later, to Washington, D.C. She worked as a domestic, a laundress, a shoe binder in the early years of their marriage because Frederick received only paltry wages as a laborer and as an abolitionist speaker. She endured long separations from her husband while he was on tour 
at one point for nearly two years at a time in England, and from which she might return bruised and battered, if at all. She endured the barely concealed racism of even the most sympathetic white people and watched her husband endure the same as well as worse from hostile mobs. And she suffered unwanted house guests for months or years at a time because Frederick insisted upon their presence. The life of Mrs. Frederick Douglass could not have been easy. And yet, describing it solely as one of sacrifice to Mr. Frederick Douglass overlooks the parts of Anna's life that she held dear and that she gained in risking escaping with him. By taking Rosetta's advice and studying Anna's life, not Frederick's, we can see that Anna's sense of herself was grounded in her home and her family. And in the context of race in 19th century America, both home and family contained political meaning beyond individual satisfaction. That her home was her pride and her domain was evident in contemporary descriptions of Anna. My mother was the head of the house, wrote her son. She was the banker, the baker, and general manager of the home. A neighbor from their earliest years in Rochester recalled that Mrs. Douglas was a model housekeeper, making sure to point out that little, if any, service was hired in that admirably kept home. Frederick himself, after indiscreetly describing a marital spat, wrote that, Amid all the vicissitudes, however, I am happy to say that my wife gives me an excellent loaf of bread and keeps a neat house and has moments of marked amiability, all of which good things I do not fail to take good due advantage. Every person who noted her skills as a housewife did so with the knowledge that housekeeping in the 19th century required hard physical labor, which she continued to perform when the Douglases could have afforded to hire servants. Although the neighbor in Rochester and even Anna's own daughter overlooked the unpaid household labor of other women in the family when they insisted Anna had no help, Anna seems never to have let the other women's efforts relieve her of her own. Even when debilitated by the chronic pain that plagued her for most of her life, she continued to closely supervise and direct, if not always actually perform, all of the work necessary to operate her home. Although perfectly helpless, Rosetta wrote of Anna's final sickness, her mother insisted from the sickbed to direct her home affairs. Furthermore, wrote Rosetta, the orders were given with precision and they were obeyed with alacrity. Furthermore, the neighbor who praised Anna's singular housekeeping also noted her thrifty care of her family and her watchful supervision of expenditure, which became the foundation of Frederick's prosperity, ensuring his future independence. Anna's son, Louis, also credited his mother's financial acumen as a source of his father's later fortunes. While they all portray her in the ancillary part, supporting her husband as he purchased houses in Rochester and DC, Anna most likely saw herself as integral to the process. Anna's close management of her household was clearly important to her sense of purpose, and as mistress of the house, she assumed a role barred to her by poverty and limited marital prospects when she was a young woman. At the same time, that work was part of her own and Frederick's effort to purchase their own home together. This house was just that, theirs, and a product of their partnership. Now, Anna's confinement of herself to a domestic sphere has frustrated later generations who expect some sort of public anti-slavery activism from the wife of the great Frederick Douglass. True, she did participate in the Lynn Ladies Anti-Slavery Society in the early years of her husband's career and donated items to fairs later. But little evidence exists to demonstrate her participation in any formal anti-slavery society in Rochester. The most obvious explanation for her absence was that they plagued other abolitionist mothers with a house full of kids. And like other prominent professional male abolitionists, such as William Lloyd Garrison, her husband did not seem to expect his wife to be an activist. These wives' most important work for the movement was to free their husbands to pursue the cause, unfettered by family or financial concerns. As Rosetta put it, her mother, in every possible way that she was capable of, aided him by relieving him of all the management of the home as it increased in size and its appointments. 
Those wives of other famed abolitionists, however, were expected to turn their homes into meeting places, centers to prepare for annual fairs, and to host speakers. Anna instead chose to maintain a wall between their private life and Frederick's public engagement, employing her home for the cause in her own way. Demanding that her children be useful and industrious, she indoctrinated them into the world of abolition by sending them to help their father at his newspaper, with her three sons, Louis, Charles, and Frederick, becoming printers, and her daughter, Rosetta, the bookkeeper. In her house, she played the consummate, if distant, hostess to those who visited, but did not impose. She seemed most welcoming, however, to fugitive slaves. After all, she married one. Although the business of the Underground Railroad took most freedom seekers through Frederick's office downtown, a handful who did find their way to the Douglas Place on the outskirts of town were absorbed into the family as honorary members, with Anna taking them in as sisters and sons. The white abolitionists received Anna's hospitality, but little more, while fugitives became members of the household, suggests that race and class, more than geography or disability, played a crucial role in Anna's reluctance to open her home formally, in the way expected of an abolitionist's wife. As Rosetta described Anna, she drew about herself a certain reserve, one that forbade any very near approach to her. Contemporaries and historians have explained that reserve as Anna's discomfort with the educated white people who visited her husband. Discomfort, however, seems an inaccurate description. Anna had grown up in a slave society and worked in the homes of white, in white homes where she had perfected this stoic mask of protection. Racism in the North did nothing to encourage or to relax her guard, and the attention that Frederick's fame drew to him and their family made her ever more vigilant. Her husband courted the patronage, support, and even friendship of white people for his career, his self-education, and his drive for an integrated society, but Anna viewed them from a different angle. Their astonishment at Frederick's abilities, at her own neatness, their unconcealed curiosity about the private life of her family, and their quickly exposed racism when she or Frederick failed to perform adequate subservience, all contributed to her disengagement from the company surrounding her husband. Because of that disengagement, she's been de depicted as lonely and isolated, almost to the point of pathology. At some level, she may well have felt alienated. No evidence exists to suggest she sought even the larger black community in Rochester or Washington. Instead, she seemed to prefer a few close companions. In Lynn, a fugitive woman named Ruth Cox, but living under the pseudonym Harriet Bailey, stayed with the Douglases from 1844 until her marriage in 1847. She and Anna referred to one another not merely as friend, but also as sister. By that time the Douglases moved to Rochester, Anna's actual sister, Charlotte Murray, had joined them, staying through most of the 1850s. During that time, Anna also associated with four other black women who lived around Rochester. When Rosetta left her husband Nathan for a brief period in the 1870s, she took her daughters and moved in with Anna and Frederick in Washington. Two of those daughters, Annie and Hattie, and their cousin Julia, continued to stay with their grandmother, as did Rosetta's sister-in-law, Louisa Sprague, who stayed by Anna's side until Anna's death. Frederick's sister, Kitty, also lived for a time with the Douglases, along with her daughter, Martha. Anna, therefore, was far from alone. She kept about her black women and girls with whom she felt a close kinship and with whom she could create her own world in the kitchen and garden, while her husband entertained his in the parlor. These elements of race, kinship, home, and pride suggest a broader interpretation of Anna in relation to abolition and to her husband. Back in the days when Frederick Bailey met Anna Murray on the streets of Fells Point, their future promised the, pro the probability of poverty and separation. Without Frederick, Anna faced a life of service to others. Even with Frederick, their marriage could be unrecognized by the law and Frederick could be sold or sent away at any moment, with Anna left to raise her children alone, searching for whatever labor would provide her with wages and allow her to stay with her babies. They ran north to preserve the integrity of their family, knowing that poverty and freedom beat poverty and slavery. 
Still, the free North was not free of racism, and most white people subscribed to the stereotype of African-American families as lacking deep emotional bonds. Frederick's celebrity and power as an activist only brought greater public scrutiny and harsher criticism for any perceived flaws. In this context, the family became representative of their race, and their flight to protect its respectability was part of a war against more than slavery. While Anna's domesticity that perplexed so many was both hard won and her blow against racism. Her husband was her equal partner in this venture, but he also fought racism on other fronts, and the nature of his own crusades sometimes placed him at odds with Anna over the object of their mission together. Some of the challenges that Anna faced were the natural product of marriage to an itinerant minister on a con controversial secular mission. Frederick's constant absences from home beginning in 1842 left Anna to do all of the daily work of raising a family alone, and she became self-reliant to the point that her daughter described Frederick as mother's honored guest, rather than an integral member of the household, a sentiment echoed by sons Louis and Charles. But more threatening was Frederick's friendships with white women. Much as Frederick refused to bow to a racial etiquette by relinquishing seat on a segregated train, he also seized as his right the freedom to associate with white women as friends and colleagues. His appearance in public with respectable, middle-class, educated white women, women above reproach, as their escort and equal, rather than their servant, were acts of open protest in which the women themselves were complicit and which other abolitionists applauded. Yet, in challenging the general anxiety about racial mixing, while at the same time challenging stereotypes of unstable black families, Frederick walked a fine line and found himself in conflict with his wife, specifically over his friendships with Julia Griffiths, the Englishwoman whose business acumen stabilized Frederick's newspaper, and Adelia Azing, the German-Jewish Jew journalist who attempted to bring Douglas to a German-speaking audience. These associations drew scandal upon the Douglas family and caused significant unrest within. The first incident occurred during an acrimonious quarrel with William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison, in an attempt to discredit Frederick and eliminate Julia Griffiths as his efficient ally, denounced their business partnership as nefarious, calling Julia a Jezebel, depicting Frederick as Samson lying his head in Delilah's lap and repeating gossip that Anna was unhappy about the situation. Frederick persuaded Anna to dictate a letter denying the rumors, then unleashed his own fury, writing that Garrison has seen fit to invade my home, despise the sacredness of my household, and break through the just limits of public controversy. To clear conscience Frederick, the smut lay in the minds of the gossip mongers rather than any action of his. Yet part of the power of the rumors came from the grains of truth that they contained. In the denial of those stories, Anna had carefully delineated between Julia's presence in Frederick's office and Julia's presence in their home, where Julia lived between 1849 and 1856. To Anna, Julia was an intruder whom she did not consider family, even if Frederick did. But Anna might suffer Julia because Julia ensured that Frederick Douglass's paper ran at a profit. Adelia Azing, on the other hand, could not be tolerated. Adelia spent approximately four to six weeks with the Douglases each summer after 1859, and despite Adelia's translation of Douglas's autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, into German, and her coverage of abolitionist items for German journals, she did little else to help Douglas's career or improve the conditions of African Americans. Instead, she treated the Douglas residence as her vacation home with the blessing of Frederick. Over the years, led by Anna, the rest of the family closed ranks against Adelia. And if Adelia's prejudices against Anna and the children were as thinly veiled and, or as condescending as her letters to her sister and to Frederick suggest, they had good reason for their animosity. Now, historians have insisted that Anna's jealousy of the intellectual stimulation that Frederick enjoyed with these women produced the discord evident in private letters of the family during the 1860s and 1870s, 
with the kindest assessments, concluding that Anna and Frederick had simply grown apart. While not entirely untrue, such a cliché does not <coughs> adequately describe the complex relationship between Anna and Frederick. Frederick would allow no one, not even his wife, to dictate his friendships, and friendships between black men and white women fostered gender and racial equality. Anna, on the other hand, looked up on Frederick's time with these women as time spent away from their family, during which he unnecessarily risked physical harm to himself, his message in the abolitionist movement, humiliation of his wife and children, and his own mission to raise a devoted and respectable black family. Furthermore, if Anna considered herself mistress of the house, a role that her husband respected, then by insisting upon long-staying guests that she did not want, Frederick flaunted the authority that Anna wielded in one of the few places in which she, a black woman, had any authority to wield, her home. Nevertheless, whatever conflict was, was <clears throat> whatever the conflict within their home, the two erected a barrier against interference from even well-meaning friends and demanded absolute respect of themselves and the other. Their marital strife lay between them alone. And as Douglas retorted to Garrison, the public have not been called upon by my household to pass upon its affairs. Both remained as committed at the end of their marriage as they had at the beginning to protecting the integrity of their family and demonstrating to the world the essential respectability, humanity, and equality of themselves and other African Americans. But when Anna suspected that Frederick had abandoned or threatened that mission, she had to protest. Now, Anna died on August 4th, 1882, after suffering a series of strokes through the summer. In expressing condolences, writer Grace Greenwood paid tribute to the scope of the Douglas Union. Aside from the breaking up of close and sacred relations of marriage, she wrote to Frederick, it must be a sad and solemn thing to suddenly be separated from one so intimately connected with your strange and eventful history, one who knew you so well during the melancholy night of bondage and the chill morning twilight of that self-deliverance which was not yet liberty or security, one who struggled with you into the day and on to the morntide of freedom and safety, honor and ease. As Greenwood observed, the Douglases' lives were tightly entwined and Frederick could not help but feel Anna's loss profoundly. On the morning of her funeral, her grandchildren found Frederick sitting outside on a slope at Cedar Hill, their home. He sat with three or four of us little fellows at his side, still as mice, wiping our tears away because Grandpa wiped his, wrote his namesake granddaughter, Frederica. He kept repeating to us, your grandma has gone away. You have no grandma now. To longtime family friend, Sarah Logwin, Frederick gave Anna an epitaph that paid tribute to her role in his life into the parts of her own that she considered most sacred. He wrote, mother was the post in the center of my house and held us together. Thank you. Thank you, um, Lee. So now we turn to the other approach to Anna Douglas's life. Um, Enzati Keda is going to um, read poems from Brief Evidence of Heaven, a series of poems in the voice of Anna Marie Douglas. Um, Dr. Keda is a poet, and, and she teaches in the English department at Ursinus College. Um, her poems have appeared in the anthologies The Ringing Ear, Black Poets Lean South, and A Face to Meet the Faces, an anthology of contemporary persona poetry, as well as Malus Journal and Nocturnus Literary Review. She is a Cave Canem alumna, and um, that's all the, oh, and she says that some of her most fruit, fruitful research on Douglas has taken place while walking the Baltimore Harbor. So please welcome Enzadi Keita. Oh, um, I think Lee and Enzadi will take questions. Right. Afterwards. Afterwards, I hope that we'll have a nice conversation. Mm -hmm. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Boy, that was fun. <laughs> Just filling in, you know. Um, 
thank you both for having us here in the programs. Uh, yeah, I was sitting there gritting my teeth. There's a couple poems. I didn't bring the whole manuscript with me. And something in my head said, are you sure you want to do that? And then I answered myself and said, yeah, you know, how many poems can people listen to at a time? And, and boy, there was a couple there that oh, went right to what Lee was saying. But anyway, we'll, we, I've got at least one that I, I threw in the mix, unplanned. Um, I'm just going to read as much as possible. I can really be dangerous with the side chat chat. So we'll see if we can hold that until the question and answers, unless I really have to say something. Um, which, is, if my students were here, they'd be falling out laughing by now. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is called History. And the only thing that you might need to know is um, I mentioned Covey. So if you read the skinny 19, 1845 narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, you might remember his famous fight with Mr. Covey, the slave breaker, quote unquote. And Frederick was the victor in that. Um, let me just say, at, at, I'm not going to belabor you with my, the, the introduction to this yet to be published uh, manuscript. Working hard, and don't have a publisher yet. Um, Lee gave this wonderful setup and talked about the children and everything, so I'll kind of reintroduce him if they come in. But um, I organized the book after great uh, anxieties about how to do it chronologically because it just made sense. I mean, I, I, I spent a couple of years just trying to find information about her, which is like not something people realize that poets do sometimes, and some don't. But there was so little when I started digging into this in really like 04, um, that I, you know, I, I didn't feel like I could, I could write some poems about her, but I started feeling a, a great obligation to honor um, something of who she was. And there was no way like with a persona poem, um, for me anyway, I try to like imagine or hear something of the person in my head. And I couldn't get anything going in my head. So be, there was nothing, you know, I mean, it's so easy to write, I would think, if you, somebody kept a diary or something. You know, you got the voice there, but I didn't have any voice. So I started just gathering up all kinds of crazy facts and pieces of facts and, you know, inferences of facts and um, ideas and perceptions and such. So um, anyway, that was <clears throat> my research was crazy that way. At a certain point, I just had to like stop. Because, you know, as some one of my poet family reminded me, you know, you're a poet. It's cool. You got enough, <laughs> you know, because you're going to go off anyway. And um, really, I do. Um, you've, you've had the historical version. Now you're going to have a version that jumps way out into the imaginary spaces where the silences um, exist. So I'll just bring you in on things that I created as facts where I need to. OK, so this is history. Some of the poems uh, have an epigraph. <clears throat> this one is from Rosetta Douglas Sprague in her small book, My Mother As I Recall Her, I think it's called. It was no unusual occurrence for mother to be called up at all hours of the night, cold and hot as the case may be, to prepare supper for a hungry lot of fleeing humanity. We will be something more than we are now. Our crumbled days and nights, our saddest parts will mix like ash and dirt, kept secret, pounded down by traveling feet. Some later man will cry some rugged song in praise to Douglas, write the sun up as he used to do, then walk a while with God, but never knowing. Walk in the leaves, trampling afternoon. His thoughts will tumble. Words all dressed in flags and velvet, swelling up like boils. 
jumping to his feet, pretending he is Douglas, struck by Covey. And when the writer turns to me, what shape will fill his mouth? How many words, how many pages will he need for, for laundry, heaping plates, and croup that breaks at dawn? How will he heed the mark of my accounts? Will it be said that I could speak, seal cracks? And years from now, who will remember bread and stew that set those bound to Canada on their feet? 400 buried shackles in my garden. Will he paint across my truth 100 years from now? Or hush me silent on a page that reads the wife of an important man? This one's called Arithmetic. Count the violins in Baltimore, the wheels of every carriage in New York City, the cranberries in New Bedford, horses in Rochester waiting to be brushed and fed, barefoot preachers in Maryland. Count barefoot preachers who see visions, or say they do. Count preachers speaking the Lord's Prayer, Count white teapots with steamy spouts. Count white teapots someone has dropped and cracked. Shirts, 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 ironed after soap board scrubbing. Count every button. Count rainwater tips on the porch roof. Flowers by color after summer starts, yellow first. How many times the crickets call. Count barefoot children. Count every flower that closes at night, count purple blackberry tongues, count red eye, blue finger, green heel, black scar, count horses that break fences, circling birds in the evening woods, beaks, then eyes. Count cows with black underbellies, black backs, black arms, black eyes. Count doors shutting, count shadows crossing door sills, Count women who lose their teeth. Count women who laugh when their corsets come off. Count women who don't wear them. Count masks in the harbor at Baltimore. Count every soul that roams. Go on and count the watchfulness, the stories that fire never burns. Count these waves. I, I got into this idea that, um, I, well, research again, good old research. Um, I, I, my, my take is that Anna Mary Douglas conventionally was illiterate, conventionally. She couldn't fully read and she couldn't fully write. But um, one thing I found out is that people that can't read get really, uh, tend to be really good with numbers. And um, so there's, there's things about, there, I play around with numbers in the, in the collection. Um, and, she, and sure enough, she did keep books for, for the family and saved money and such. Um, so she was good with that. Um, where is oh, here we go. Another thing that I came up with was that, um, you know, there's more than one way to read. You know, and and I would think that somebody in her with the life that um, Dr. Fawkes described would need to know how to read in some other ways to get around on her own. So um, most of the most of the uh, poems I seem to be wanting to read are coming like from the middle of the collection. Again, it goes Maryland, Massachusetts, um, Rochester, and then Washington D.C. So. Most of these, uh, the, the arithmetic is the Baltimore, Maryland section. Um, this one is from um, the Massachusetts section. It's called Tea at the Anti-Slavery Society. Lips alone make so much to study. Let your eyes take in some quiet. Wait till a shoulder turns. Look again. Those lips steal the story from twig to branch to ash, 
Add the eyes, the hands, the shoulders, and you've got a book. The cover, the marks, and all the pages. Every sound my heart holds back to sit and handle in the dark starts with lips. Sour fruit that I've seen shrivel and come back to life. Cleaver, torch, broken shell of an egg, fish scale, soup spoon. The longer you look, the more comes true. Uh, try to put these in order. Keep on doing my order. Let me see. No, I'm not gonna do that one. Um, yeah. So those that's that poem kind of has to do with uh, addresses abolition a little bit. Um, uh, I guess I would. It was in the maybe pile, this one, but I'll, I'll do it real fast. Um, this one is called 1839, Making New England's Acquaintance. Winter is a man, that much is certain. Not so old, but hungry for attention, and whatever keeps knees working as they should. I would wrestle with his brother, Massachusetts. Sometimes toss a fist of laughter back at him, my kind of fire. List my people's names to burn his breath. Cough the strength saved up in me with work and water. Strength I counted on to cross the creek and bay. Cold up there was something to be broken. Shackles that no dollar price could pay. The ice on morning buckets, every day's white wall. Um, oh, so I pursue uh, the idea throughout the collection of, of various ways in which literacy comes up for her. You know, my position is that uh, she knew her circumstances were put, had put her in a, a weird and precarious place. She's, she's kind of like some of these first-generation immigrant mamas that they don't really speak the language, but their children do, and their children, you know, write it and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, my, my, from what I, and I didn't do the kind of research that my associate here did, but I did quite a lot. And um, my sense was that, you know, she wanted to, she wanted to acquire those skills. She was uh, a woman who wanted to do well in the world you know, in her context. And certainly she didn't, wasn't necessarily comfortable the fact that she couldn't read and write and probably had some tension around that, I would guess. Um, but she was also independent and proud and was not about to be humbled on account of somebody else's perception of her knowledge. And so um, uh, that plays out in, there's a number of poems that I wrote that are just about her fascination with letters not letter, you know, epistolary, but uh, alphabet, letters of the alphabet. So there's a few alphabet poems. I'm just going to read one. Am I? Yeah, I'm going to read one. This is called Letter L. Last, lark, loves, loaves, lake, lady, learns, lilac, lips, Lend, look, likely, lead, Lewis, lick, lavender, and look, and look, and look. How L knows my life in single strokes, the shape of a sigh. I know L because of lilies leaning to get the sun's attention. So yeah, that, I didn't do the whole alphabet. Uh, that would have been, you know, <laughs> you know, you got to catch yourself. Um, but I am. I've been provoked to read this poem. <laughs> I was gonna be nice, but <laughs> I was gonna behave myself at Villanova. But I have to. You made me do it. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm going to read this poem called Attic Window, and I don't think I have to say anything about it. 
Um, the quote comes from Maria Diedrich. And um, it says, uh, how do you pronounce it? Assings? Adelia Assings. Adelia Assings' Letters to Douglas, which she wrote as a lover of more than 20 years, celebrated a familiar, rich sensuality. That's the um, epigraph. Those Tuesdays when I climbed the attic loft, the window was a comfort high and far, that called me from my trials like thrushes called to song. I waited out the visits when Miss Otterly came, a blue-eyed weed my husband found. She was no guest. The downtown eyes called her the public wife, who claimed his arm and took his books into her foreign mouth, the bitter when Fred auctioned off my place. She laughed and laughed, of course, at me. How could a mammy be a match for such a princely man? I heard her hiss. She wrote his speeches, left her name in drawers. The halls bowed out as if the house had witnessed too much pain, a swollen, unhealed shape. I went up high and listened to her playing at my life. I cut some cloth to fix her, but I knew that conjure would bring ruin. And now, latched to the bed, I wish I'd kept those scraps of silk to learn a softer sigh, to teach my hands new joys, hands that our abolition-loving liar once called pause. Okay, a few more, winding it down. Um, there's a couple, um, there's some poems there because um, what Dr. Sewell read as the intro was right at a point. The poems were all in the voice of Anna Mary Douglas. But, you know, uh, after, like, I got deep in it, I was like, yeah, the whole book can't be her. I just, it's not going to work. So, um, and I was just, I kind of, like, called out to the spirits, yeah, I said that, um, it, you know, to see what else would happen. And um, some of this came from, I did some traveling. I went to the, most of the places that they lived together, which I went to New Bedford, New Bedford. I went to uh, Rochester where she's buried. I went to Washington, D.C. and sat on the porch of the house and took that ungodly tour that hardly mentions her at all. And, um, and I went to the Baltimore Harbor, where I did get a lot of stuff. Um, so in the course of doing all that, uh, other things started happening. I started getting little glimmers of voices from other people. So there's some poems by other people um, in the book that you know were related in some way to her. Uh, this one is called, am I going to do this one? I guess so. Charles Douglas, Underground Railroad Agent. Slaves means things that move at kiss of flame or whip or knuckle slap. Things that need no even breathing. Things to stand up shined by doorways to catch tobacco spit, to cut down lumber, turn logs to ash, food from guts, from pot leavings, candles from the small cut lumps of fat. Snatch of a man who sleeps in view of the quarters, your mouth glued with spit that you think is honey. Can't you feel the house tip backward, the air winking? What you hold by heated rods and metal collars is never, was never, won't be yours. Recognize them as the forces of your ruin. No slave ever crossed these porches. We call them what we are. Children, women, men. Okay, winding down. Mm -hmm. um, three more. Um, 
Rosetta Douglas came up and um, Rosetta Douglas, you know, even though she, um, that little book was a godsend, but I kept staring at her picture. I had pictures of all the children as adults on the, on the wall in my study and I would just stare at them and stare at the pictures I took in DC and in Rochester and so forth. And um, I never heard Rosetta's voice that much. And then suddenly, at the, toward the end, I did. So this is called um, Journal Entries, Rosetta Douglas Sprague, 1879. July 10th. Men and marriage and a way made straight, but not plain. I never could read all that you set down, mother. August 7th. Mother reads water, all kinds. She brings dirt and seeds close to speech with brief passes of hand. She makes a better anything than me. And how is that when I have had at least some time to flounce, when I have dropped stitches and carried Latin verbs while her arms were caked with clay and wet white clothes needing cautious management? I have never wanted to measure what a God who made us all gave me, or think how I will sow it to my inheritance from her, will and would at midnights. Okay, two more. Um, this is, I, I pictured her, um, when she moved to Washington, D.C., it was, um, it was, this, you know, it was, it was, the grandchildren were there, um, and it was, I thought it was ironic that she had, like, been pulled so far away from the Tidewater area, the Washington, D.C., Maryland area, by her life with Douglas, um, and eventually she comes back, but by the time she's, like, sick a lot, and... She has this grand house again after somebody burns down the other one in Rochester. Um, but yeah, I don't know how much she was able to really enjoy it. But at any rate, it's definitely an interesting place to go visit and take the tour. Um, they let you sit on the porch as long as you want. So, um, so this, I pictured her like kind of, you know, sick and reflecting at this point. So this is from the Washington section. It's called I Own. She used to drag me forward, still asleep, flash sideways, part the grass. She tumbled bushel baskets in the market air. Now here she is, my body, my kettle, my wild lantern, proud as brass. I never hated her. In fact, she split whole days and curled their edges. She took a knife to closed roads. And here she is, still necessary, better most among my books, a scythe that dulls and weakens against stone, my brief evidence of heaven, blessed slate with its own curves and strokes, a hurricane before I knew the word. Sleepless now, I guard her, little left but gaze and time. I have never hated her. I think I'm going to stop there. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. Um, well, thank you, Enzati. I thought that was fantastic and really rich listening to both um, talks. So I hope people have questions. Um, I don't know if you guys have questions for each other. You want to oh, no, start we'll a conversation off? OK. Yeah. So. This one's for Stan. Why do you call the book uh, Brief Evidence of Heaven? I like that line. <laughs> um, why did I call it that? Uh, that? That line came up way back in the beginning, like in like 05 when I just started making the poems. And it kept just hanging around. I, didn't, I had a couple other title options, but that one kept coming back. To the top, and I realized that um, 
maybe it was fitting, excuse me, maybe it was a fitting way to talk about her experiences, you know, kind of su a summary kind of line, because, you know, there was a lot of hardship for her, but also a, a lot of magic and prowess and um, wonderfulness. So. First of all, I loved both of you. I just thought Lisa and I were brilliant. Because I mean, but you guys were brilliant because you made it work exactly the way we had envisioned it. And thank you very, very much. Um, I, I this is more a comment, but maybe you could comment on my comment. But I thought actually two I two questions, comments, whatever. One is it's in, the alphabet poems are really interesting to me in light of Douglas, Douglas's acquisition of literacy mm -hmm. and the way that he describes that in 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 um, at least his first autobiography. And I don't know if, if maybe you were thinking about that, but you could talk about that. And then the second is I'm just wondering what research prompted you and Zadi to in that Dietrich poem um, because. The way that, I mean, I think the implication or the insinuation of perhaps an affair or certainly an uncomfortable relationship is there in, in, in the way that you describe it, but it's totally, I mean, it's vicious in your, in your poem. And I'm just wondering, was there research that took you there? It, it, I just wish you guys could comment on sort of your angles at that. I, I, for a long time, I've been making poems for about two years. And you know, I was getting somewhere. And um, then I started having these thoughts off the side that said things to me like, you know, you can't avoid the whole women thing forever. You can't, and you can't justifiably really, it would be dishonest to kind of not have any poems about that. But I've been avoiding it. And, um, you know, I read different uh, accounts, uh, snatches. I was teasing her that, yeah, you read all the history books. I would like go to the index and read the parts. <laughs> I mean, no, that's not totally true. It's not totally true. Because I needed more context for their life and stuff. But, you know, mostly what so many of the history books talk about is the abolition movement. Um, that, you know, I, and I wasn't really that interested in the details of the abolition movement. So, but I, I, I cobbled together a group of, of, like, whatever information that made it pretty clear to me that Something untoward was going on for a you know, married man. I mean, she, she came to their house every summer for 22 years and went, they went, you know, they went places, they went to concerts and I mean, yeah. So even if it wasn't actually a full-blown affair, it was just really bad. <laughs> you know, it was really not a good thing. Well, I mean, it shows up in the letters of, um, that he writes to his daughter and then he writes, you know, it's not necessarily between them, but you can see, um, I mean, there's this whole thing about, like, they're out playing croquet on Cedar Hill, and Adelia has the blue ball, and everybody keeps whacking the blue ball out of play. And it, it, I went to Cedar Hill and was talking with some of the curators about that, where they would be playing. If you knocked the ball out of play, it was going off the hill. Oh. And yeah, and then he'll say something like, um, he'll say things like, you know, his life is Anna and um, Louisa, the sister-in-law, are being, um, you know, they are now behaving themselves now that Miss Azing is gone. So there's, there's stuff going on. Now, I started to, when I started to research the book, the Diedrich book, because um, I thought, okay, that's been done. I've just got to find a way to put this in what I'm writing about in an original way. And um, what new can I add to this? And I was not doing this because this is making my life so much harder. Is um, I started to re you know follow her research. 
it didn't go down like, I don't think it went down the way she says it went down in that book. Now, I do believe there was something untoward going on. I mean, it was something that, I mean, it's a violation of a lot of things in the house. I don't think they were getting it on in the house. <laughs> but if they were, okay, that means that Frederick Douglass is getting it on with a woman under the same roof as his wife, his daughter, the baby daughter um, who dies when she's 10, his three sons, his sister-in-law, guests. So that's like, okay, if it went down like that, what does it say about him? And is this consistent with his character? Now, um, so, you know, it, it's, and, and if that did, then that's something we have to evaluate. But then you also have to ask, did it go down like that? I mean, was he really doing this? And then um, he would visit her in Hoboken, but then I started thinking, okay, well, they're getting it on in Hoboken. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but, um, but then I started thinking, okay, in Hoboken. She's staying in these houses with these, you know, ger middle class Germans who have children. I mean, is this something they're going to accept? You know, that, that the border is sleeping with the white man or the black man in the house and the neighbors know all of this? I mean, is this something they want to bring up on their house at a time when this is, this is, going to bring violence on them. And so, um, and then, then I started looking at when the evidence of this affair was supposed to, and most of the evidence comes from later, and it's not really, it's more in the way you read the letters. And then the letters that are supposed to be the smoking gun are in a context that makes them highly questionable, in which she's saying she's, she's been friends with a man, and She's saying this years later. She's saying this to her sister who's just gone through a nasty divorce in which she's trying to solicit information out of her sister and her sister and her get don't get along. And she's trying to one up her sister. And so it's like, okay, this makes this a problem mm. as far as you know, a physical affair. Now, you can be involved with someone without getting it on with them in ways that does threaten your marriage and he's bringing Adelia into the house she doesn't want Adelia there all the evidence is that Adelia is just condescending racist vicious nasty and says all sorts of stuff that is just not her business to say about the family and um, and she's saying this to Douglas and so she's saying this to him you know how is she behaving in the house and so this nasty woman is in the house for weeks on end. Anna doesn't want her there. There's, there is some kind of a tension going on there that causes a disruption. And so, uh, I mean, I'm not convinced that they're getting it on, but I am convinced that this relationship is something that is interfering with the family and interfering with the marriage that in a way that it doesn't have to be sex for it to to make her as angry as that. Questions? I, have a, I, I was just wondering if, I, it's sort of a hard, I don't know how to frame it exactly, but I was wondering if like both of you could talk about um, sort of maybe your thoughts about the difference between your approaches, you know, like in terms of taking a historic, you know, historian's approach to this subject, which seems somewhat elusive, you know, an elusive subject, and then also um, doing research as a poet. I mean, I guess sort of thinking about the, the similarities and the differences maybe that you noticed in each other's um, presentations. Maybe does that? Assuming there are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, well, yeah, um, I mean, we're jumping off of the same set of information. It's, um, I'm jealous of well, the talent here and the beauty and the, the ability to go places in the imagination that the craft of history doesn't let you go, and to inhabit and actually breathe a voice into 
what little information there is because I have to go. What does he? What I have to be very strict about what is. What does the document say? And what does this document say? And what does this document say? And um, and so it's. It, sometimes I'm just sitting here going. You know, where is her life in this? And then I start having dreams where I die and go over to the other side and she starts slapping me and does <laughs> and um, no, I mean, I go to her grave and I, you know, I'm like, like, please don't hate me, please don't haunt me. Because you know, that just that kind of, almost that feeling of, of putting, forcing an interpretation on someone else's life like that. I mean, there's so little, she, she's not telling me. And I feel like I'm doing something um, that, again, if she met me, she wouldn't stop slapping me because I get the feeling she just, she didn't want me to know. Like she didn't want the abolitionists who invaded her home to know. It was not our business. And I'm making it my business. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I just, the, and so to, to try to, you know, that just seems so much more beautiful than this that I'm doing. So.